Embedded deep in the human heart is a longing to be with the right people at the right time, at the right place. During the Christmas season, our sensitivities to this reality are heightened. You're undoubtedly going to hear the song somewhere, I'll be home for Christmas, you can count on me. And then it turns melancholy, I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my dreams. It's a tough time of year for soldiers stationed overseas and for their families here at home. It can be a very difficult time for families feeling the loss of loved ones, maybe for the first Christmas. Maybe you've seen the award-winning TV commercial that enacts the Christmas time story of a puppy living on a horse farm who slips undetected into a horse trailer. Neither the puppy's owner nor the visitor who is pulling the trailer sees the dog jump into the trailer or out of it when it finally arrives at its place a long, long ways from home. No one knows where the dog is or that the dog has been lost, but they know they miss it. They don't know where it is. They don't know what has happened. And frightened but determined, the puppy starts the long journey home through many dangers, toils, and snares. One day, the heart-sick farmer stares forlornly out the window, and you get the feeling he's been doing this a lot of days in a row. What happened to my puppy? It's Christmas. He's not here. Where is my puppy? And there he looks and sees the little puppy running down the lane toward the farmhouse. It's a grand reunion. Home for Christmas. It just does something within us. It's a bit over the top, the whole thing. I mean, he's got horses that come out and save the dog from a wolf and escort it back to the farmhouse. And you just say, this is ridiculous. And yet it works. In all of its tear-jerking capacities, it works. And it works because it plays on something deep within us, to be at the right place with the right people at the right time. It plays at this time of year on a romantic chord as well, doesn't it? The perfect weather for a sleigh ride together with you. Next week, not so much, but this week, this is really special. And the playful couple builds a snowman and it becomes the pastor that marries them and pretend as they're playing, and it's just a beautiful time to be together. It all hinges on being with the right person at the right time, the right place. All of this, we could go on and on with illustrations, all of this is a faint reflection of the longing that God has programmed into our nature to dwell with Him, to be with Him Now, most people never recognize that longing for what it truly is. And many even rebel against it, refusing to admit any real interest in communion with God and developing then through character, the characteristics of life, through who they become and who they are, an aversion to God to even say that He doesn't exist. We recognize all of this, but it does not change the fact that God created us to find our ultimate joy in communion with Him. He made every soul that way. And these reminders to us of wanting to be with the people we want to be with at the right time and the right place is all a reflection of who we are, who we were made to be. 
every soul is and will remain restless and dissatisfied unless and until we dwell in God's presence as we were created to do. And this is much of the beauty of the Christmas story, the real Christmas story these days, not of puppy stories of imagination and not just this light romantic feel of the day, but the true Christ with us. Think of it, with us. As Matthew writes in one twenty-three, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Quoting the prophet Isaiah. And then that passage in John chapter 1 where the Word is God and the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And we have seen His glory, the glories of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Becoming flesh, He lives with us. We see this vital theme as the angels announced our hope and our salvation is rooted in the rescuing presence of God with us. And this theme connects to our series on the city as that story comes to its glorious finale in these last pages of the book of Revelation. We've considered briefly Revelation chapter 19 and the risen Christ who will return a second time to earth to destroy the armies hostile to His people. And then Revelation chapter 20 where Satan is bound for a thousand years as Jesus reigns from Jerusalem's throne. The curse on the earth is removed. This, I believe, is coming. Some would see it as today, but I believe that it is future. It is coming. This day when the curse will be removed. Jesus will rule the nations with a rod of iron. An era of unprecedented beauty and prosperity. But then as we noted in Revelation 20, it is also true that Satan is released. And when released, those who are born during that period of time, they're born in their sin, though Christ controls and rules, they turn when Satan is released and join his rebellion against the Christ. And there is that final battle where Satan is destroyed by Christ and thrown into the lake of fire as well as all who follow him. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And this is the second death, the lake of fire. Notice the second death in the lake of fire. Just keep that thought in mind. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the raging of the nations, as we come to chapter 21, the raging of the nations against Christ is silenced. You've been outside one day and you, you hear, there's this noise that you're hearing but not really hearing. It's just there and you're getting more and more irritated. You don't really recognize it and then it stops. And you just go, oh, it's done. I didn't even realize how annoying that sound was, but it's quiet and there's peace. That's where we are entering chapter 21. Sin is gone. Satan is gone. Those who follow him are gone. That rebellion that noise that's just everywhere, every day that we live in this world, it's gone. There's this peaceful silence as we come into chapter 21. The great destroyer death is itself destroyed and the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 11.15 
So we leave behind the fire and the sulfur. We leave behind the cloud of agony and rebellion in chapter 20. And Revelation 20, then 21 is a fresh and pristine world that emerges, free of all sin, illumined with a splendor that is beyond compare. Imagine it, believer. Imagine this world. All that opposes God has been silenced. All that opposes God in this broad world, all that opposes God in our hearts, it's gone. It's all sealed away. And we see a new city. We see the new order of the eternal city described in the first four verses of Revelation 21. Let's consider that together. The new order of the eternal city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Verse 1, he sees, John in this revelation sees a new heaven and a new earth. The first having passed away, as well as the sea. Then we realize how it connects to chapter 20. The millennial reign of Christ is the fullest expression of God's kingdom to that point in history. The millennial reign, however, is now complete. All of Christ's enemies forever removed. And Christ turns the kingdom over to the Father. 1 Corinthians 15, 24-28. Then, a new heaven and a new earth. This is not something new to the Bible. This is something that has been prophesied for a long time. We see this in the book of Isaiah 66 and verse 20. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's talking about his love for Israel, but in doing that he draws upon this future concept of a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth have now passed away. We find some insight in that from the Apostle Peter who says in chapter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. The question that we ask here is does God obliterate the first heavens and the first earth to create a second heaven and a second earth out of nothing. Is that how we're to understand this? I think from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 20 and following, we have indication that the new heavens and the new earth are not a second or another heaven and earth, but rather a purified and refashioned earth and heaven. And they indeed here in this text come together. Sin has corrupted the universe. We all admit that. But God created the universe as man's dwelling place, and God got nothing wrong when He did that. He does not invent then a better earth and heaven, 
but he purifies them with fire and refashions them into a magnificent world. I believe the picture is, take a ring of gold, and it looks a certain way. We take that ring and we melt it down into liquid gold, and then we refashion it into a what? Another ring, kind of the same gold it's the same material but it you say it's it's another ring even though it's really in a sense the same ring and i think we see the same idea with believers the scriptures speak of a believer as a new creation when you come to christ and become a new creation it's still you but you've been remade second corinthians five seventeen. i think it's in that sense that we see the new heavens and the new earth and if Peter, as he's directing us, I mean, how do you even grasp the significance of what he's saying or the meaning of what he's saying? We don't have a clue of what that would be like. But all of the universe burning and being melted down, but then refashioned, remade into a new heaven and a new earth where there is no sea. That may be a figurative idea. In the book of Revelation, the sea is pictured as the source of chaos and rebellion against God, as a theological a sealess world may be symbolic of a world free of all danger and sin. It probably doesn't mean no body of water on this new earth, but even if it does mean that, literally, it's a place of exquisite beauty and the sea won't be missed, as hard as that is for some of us to imagine. I love the sea. I think it's a beautiful place on this earth. I don't know what this means entirely, but what we can do is rest. It will be good. It will be very, very good. Verse 2, he continues, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the city that Abraham anticipated by faith, Hebrews 11, that we've considered earlier. I see no reason not to take this as a real city. What's the point of naming it New Jerusalem if it has no connection to the old Jerusalem? Just give it a different name. I think there is some connection. And the picture is of a bride adorning herself to look as good as she can look for her man. We know that deal too, don't we? That's the whole goal of it. And you see that. What, what is the goal ultimately? I, I get to watch this as a pastor from a lot of angles and it's, it's a joy to see it. But the goal is she takes care of her body. She presents herself such that her husband-to-be, as he sees her, will say what? Wow, wow, I knew you were beautiful. I didn't know you were quite that beautiful. I mean, that's what you're aiming at. That's the beauty of it. That's the picture that's here, like a bride adorned for her husband. This Jerusalem descends as God's bride in a sense. It's a beautiful place. Its beauty is, in fact, stunning. Yet a city is never built for beauty alone, is it? It's built for habitation, the habitation of God's people. It is also a city so glorious, so majestic, so beautiful, it is worthy of God's eternal habitation. And that is the glorious truth revealed in verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This verse captures the very purpose of salvation history. Get familiar with that verse because it captures so much of what God is doing in revealing to us in the word to save our souls. 
Verse 3 is a return to the garden before the fall. But the wording that John uses also draws on another thread of redemptive history. And it perhaps hits you here as we read this verse. The dwelling place of God is with man. Reminds us again of John chapter 1 and verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, the Greek words skene, is to tent or to tabernacle. Christ came and tented among us. That tenting, that tabernacling among us, being with us, dwelling in our midst, draws our attention back again to the tabernacle. And we see how the threads of redemptive history are being tied up and brought together here. We've considered even in this series the glory cloud of God. That glory descending on Mount Sinai. God giving His law to His people and making Israel His people as a nation. But then that glory descends off of Mount Sinai and fills the tabernacle. God is dwelling with His people. As He dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden, so He is dwelling now in the tabernacle. And that tabernacle moves from place to place and eventually comes to the place of Solomon's temple where the glory of God fills that temple. And then we considered how that glory departed from the temple due to Israel's sin and returns then here, John 1.14, in the person of Christ. God dwelling among us is the point of it all. That's what we lost in Eden. That's what God has been working to restore through the ritual sacrifice of Israel and the presence of the glory in the temple. And that is what He is restoring in the person of Christ, the very image of God. So with obvious parallels to the tabernacle of God's presence among Israel, we read of Christ's coming and then here in verse 3 where it all comes together. Behold now the dwelling place of God, the tabernacling, the tent of God, the place of His presence. Here's the key. It's with us. It's come to be with His people. This is the whole goal. And it all hinges on the work that Christ has done to redeem a people for God's name. We have that little puppy coming home. And it moves us within to say, oh, it's where it's supposed to be. Take whatever that is that moves us in our heart and multiply it thousands and thousands of times over. That's how verse 3 should hit us. This is the end. This is everything. This is where it's all been pointing that God would dwell with His people. Literally physically. There are over 20 references that use this very phrase in the Bible. Let me show just two, and maybe in particular because of our somewhat recent series through the book of Leviticus. But notice the theme coming out here. I will make my dwelling among you. My soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I'm your God. You're my people. I am with you. This is home. This is everything where it's supposed to be. I will be with you. The prophet Ezekiel 37, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel, and my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. It will be in their midst in time, but it's going to be in their midst 
forevermore. There's this pointing us forward to this end, to this final conclusion. The assurance of this fulfillment will be taken up in the next section of Revelation 21. But the vision pauses then here to focus on the significance of it and at verse 4 to launch into one small example of an implication which is very profound. What is that? God is with you, then this is what it means, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The context of the book of Revelation would draw us particularly to the martyrs, to those who have suffered for Christ and died there, but... Tears of many kinds mar our fallen world, and the point applies. Tears of sorrow resulting from sin, from disease, from frustration, from turmoil, from insecurity, from sadness, from disappointment, from persecution, from death itself. All of that is history. No more mourning painful loss. No more mourning of death. It's gone. Some of you... Particularly, I'd like to draw your attention here and encourage you. Do you see that phrase? Nor any more pain. Praise God for that day coming. Some of you don't even remember what that day is like. Where there was no pain. You live in pain every day of your life. This is where God is taking you who struggle with that. And all of us do. Or eventually will. Because that's what it means to be in the presence of God. All that is sin, all that is dark, all that is the result of the rebellion is gone. There's a subtle shift in focus at verse 5 where Christ speaks. The emphasis falling ultimately upon the inheritors of the eternal city. That is the new order of it all. But who inherits it? We know first of all beginning in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In verse 5 through the first part of verse 6, let's consider it again. He who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What are those words? It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The glory of this scene is so great, it leaves us to ask in disbelief, really? Could this possibly be? And the answer is, it is done. And the one declaring the assurance of these future events is he who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha, the first letter of the Hebrew Alpha of the Greek alphabet. I get my languages mixed up here. It's Greek, right? Yeah, Alpha's Greek. Omega, uh, the, the last letter 
of the Greek alphabet. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, guarantees this end as the creator of the universe, as the sovereign Lord of history. He is the beginning and the end. The Aleph and the Tau as well. God determines the way to eternal life in the city, is the point. Secondly, the people of God enjoy eternal life in this city. Verse 6, continuing, To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is not so much here an offer of salvation to the lost. It's an offer to believers who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who long to walk in God's presence. Verse 6, what majestic transcendence is here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the ending. But then the gracious imminence to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This one who is high and lifted up gives a drink to the thirsty, provides it for us. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. In the ancient world, inheritance passed on to sons and thus the idea here. But the language of inheritance applies to every believer. We are inheritors of this place of this presence with God. We will live in His presence, not merely as servants of His dominion, certainly that in some sense, but also as heirs of the new heavens and the new earth. All we must do is thirst for life with God and then drink the free gift of life in His presence. So God determines the way to this city. The people of God enjoy this city and drink gladly quenching their spiritual thirst. But thirdly, the offspring of Satan are outcasts from eternal life in the city. I use the phrase, the offspring of Satan, to draw upon our whole series here and to begin to draw it together as we consider the offspring of the serpent in the very early stages of this series. But here we see them as cast out of the city. In a sense, Cain's city comes full circle here. Cain was, I've got my city, I don't need God. He goes away from the presence of the Lord to establish his city and it thrives. It thrives without God. It thrives with false man-made religion. Here now, those who follow that religion, those who follow that way, are set out of the final city, the city of God. An exclusion from God's presence should not surprise anyone who has read the Bible and has considered God's ways through the ages. It doesn't shock us at all. It's to be expected in light of God's saving purposes through the centuries. We think of the tabernacle itself in the book of Leviticus and described throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We, we think of it there. It's all about exclusion. There's these concentric circles that keep people out from the presence of the Lord, not because He doesn't want them in, but because they are tainted with sin. And so these circles set up as parameters to bring us in, lest in the presence of God we die. We think of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where the only the high priest one day a year enters in behind that veil into the Holy of Holies. And there representing the nation, 
purifies them in their approach to God. We have the goat that leaves the tabernacle and takes the sin, as it were, out into the wilderness, away from the presence of the Lord. God protecting sinners from His holiness, lest they die. And God Himself being protected from sinners, lest they corrupt Him. All of it in ritual presentation. But everything to which that system pointed is realized in what is the forever sinless environment now of God's presence. It would be ruinous to contaminate the sinless environment of the new Jerusalem with people who are entrenched in sin. Cain has his city and he loves it there. And the offspring of the Satan now are separated from it. So the cowardly are excluded, verse 8. And the faithless are excluded. The detestable people whose lives have been given over to wicked practices and murderers, remembering that Jesus taught us that can take place in the mind. But those who hate and want to take the life, they rejoice in the death of someone. They long to do harm and to hurt and to snuff out the life of their enemy or the sexually immoral. And Jesus taught us this sin can take place entirely in the mind as well. Just like murder. Or sorcerers, those who use drugs and magic and incantations and secretive arts and the like. And idolaters, people who worship false gods. And that is any god imagined or made of wood, metal or brick or whatever. And even of a relationship that can be idolatrous. Anything that takes the primary place of love for God in our hearts. Idolaters, those who serve other gods. And all liars. Those failing to live in conformity to the God who is truth and never lies. Their destiny, verse 8 says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That connects us back to chapter 20, verse 6, the second death, and verse 15, the lake of fire. It's a final destiny. Let's think on verse 8 for a few moments. I think there's one wrong response, and that is an unnecessary fear. You look at this verse and you say, I've committed some of these sins. I commit some of these sins habitually. I'm clearly destined for the lake of fire, and I cannot be rescued. What this response does is it looks backward, and it looks inward. And I would encourage you, if you're looking there, look upward. Look to Christ. Don't focus here alone. Look to the one who satisfies thirst and forgives sin. The hope for all sinners is Christ. So don't take this verse and get oriented into how do I perform? Look to Christ whose perfect righteousness is given as a gift like a drink of water to a thirsty person. It satisfies And like clothing to the naked, it covers and secures. But I think there's a second response to this verse that is also dangerous, and that is an overconfidence. I commit some of these sins. I live like this. In fact, some of this list could characterize me, but I'm good because I've trusted Jesus. I know the gospel. So verse 8 has nothing to do with me. I think both of these responses are wrong. And we need to think in a different direction. Those who are cast away from eternal city 
are not described merely as those who reject the gospel, though that is clear, but they are described as people whose lives the gospel has not changed. That's a difference. The salvation that Jesus gives changes people. It changes their affections. It changes what they want. It changes how they see themselves. It changes how they look at everything in life. Now, it takes time. It doesn't happen immediately. Not completely in this life ever for anyone. But it puts us in, in a such were some of you sin category. A such were some of you. Not a such are some of you who just happen to know the gospel. So the answer is not our righteousness, not our righteous deeds, and not what we have done to come simply to know the gospel, but the answer is in Christ who saves. And in the salvation of Christ, where it is genuine and real in the heart, there issues forth change, a working out, a weeding out of sin. So that we look at verse 8 and we say, the cowardly, those who fear to stand for Christ, the faithless, those who deny Christ, the sexually immoral, those who say, God, forget you, I'm going to do it my way sexually, the sorcerers, those idolaters who have other gods and other accesses to power around God, those who are liars, who seek to control their world by speaking untruth, all such people, that's not us. That's not us if we know Christ. And no such person will corrupt God's eternal dwelling. We need the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't come from us. But if this characterizes you, you've heard about the second death. And I would encourage you today to come to the light. This passage reminds us that the greatest dignity and delight any human being can experience is communion with God in His presence. And if nothing else is gained here today, I encourage you to come home to this truth, to know you've considered it at least, to see it here. This passage reminds us that the greatest dignity and delight any human being can experience is communion with God in His presence. That experience is impossible. That place cannot be created apart from the total separation of all that is evil all that is painful, all that is dark, all that opposes God or depends on His withdrawal. And the good news is that the longing deep within our souls for just this presence and just this place is the promised future inheritance of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, who have come to place their hope and their salvation in Christ crucified and risen. What a glorious place we have. What a glorious home we have. What a prospect we have to be in the presence of God in the eternal city forever. In light of this coming splendor and freedom from the power and presence of sin, C.S. Lewis raises a troubling question for us in his book, The Problem of Pain. And he asks why we do not desire this eternal city more. We become so infatuated with the here and the now, with the pleasure-feeding trinkets of this sinful world that our affections are turned away from what is ultimate and final and perfectly good 
the eternal city in God's presence. But in his typical way, Lewis turns it all on us to get us to think and says, there have been times when I think we do not desire the eternal city. But more often I find myself wondering whether, in our heart of hearts, we have ever desired anything else. The desires we experience, in other words, all the time the desires that we experience to be with the right person at the right place, at the right time, is a faint echo in our souls of this longing to be with God. We rejoice to see a lost puppy make his way home. I mean, we, get, we can get a tear in our eye just to watch it. We desperately miss a loved one at Christmas or every minute of every day until we die. Whether it's wanting to be complete or fulfilled, or whether it's wanting to breathe in truly fresh air, or the restless desire to see a beauty beyond anything you've seen in this beautiful universe, whether it's a desire to be free of pain or free of heartache, finally free from the tyranny of indwelling sin or the attraction of vile things, all of it is pointing to one final place, one final time, and in the presence of one ultimate relationship. All of it is pointing our hearts to the fulfillment of dwelling with God in the eternal city that is to come. So for every one of us, we must ask the question, where am I headed? Am I headed to this home described here in Revelation 21? Or am I already home in this world, in Cain City, to be shut out? Where are you headed? I believe it's mentioned in somewhat of a distinct way from what we find here in chapter 21, because I think this is given this word to unbelievers, to all, to those who aren't headed to this city. It reminds us of Jesus' words in John 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus now has been glorified. The Spirit has been poured out. And for those who come to know Christ, there is this drinking of this living water, which will be described further in chapter 21. But this water of life is the relationship with God that we can have now. And we can enjoy here as we sing together as God's people, as we consider His Word together, and as we live every day in fellowship with the Lord through the indwelling Spirit of God. That life is there for those who do what? I'm not self-sufficient. I'm spiritually thirsty. I come, I receive, and I drink. Receiving the provision that Christ provides. For those of us who have received that provision, there is alive within us the Spirit of God witnessing the truth of His Word and the promises that are yet to come and rejoicing in this and saying, this, Revelation 21, I love my home, I love my family, I love this world, you say, in so many ways, but Revelation 21, this is my home. This is where I'm going. This is the end. To dwell with God in His presence forever. For those, think of it in light of this exhortation from the Apostle Peter. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be 
in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, see it? According to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're people on the go. We're pilgrims. We are those who are waiting and anticipating this great day. May God help us to that end, to hold the things of this life loosely, to look even ultimately in the face of death and all the pain that sin brings, and to say, there is a time coming when I'll be with God and every tear will be wiped dry. And forever in His presence, we will rejoice that the Lord is with us and we are in His place forever.